Almighty God, would you ask that your Holy Spirit would come afresh in this place, that as we open your word, we would see your Son, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, that he would draw all men to himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. My family and I have enjoyed a few weeks of vacation, and we're excited to be back. One of the highlights of my time away was. Uh, last week, when my family went up to the mountains of North Carolina, ever since we lived in the upstate, one of the things that we really love to do is go hiking up in the mountains and go searching for waterfalls. And the crowning moment of our trip was when we woke all three kids up, and it was still dark outside, and we drove uh, east of Asheville to Craggy Mountain. And as the sun was still rising, we made our way through the tunnels of rhododendron and uh, finally reached the summit, and there, at the pinnacle of Craggy Mountain, we had a 360-degree view of some of the tallest mountains east of the Mississippi. It was absolutely breathtaking. Well, as we come to our lesson in Colossians this morning, I couldn't help but be transported back there to the summit of Craggy Mountain. It's fair to say that Colossians is one of the tallest summits of the New Testament, so to speak. Uh, if the book of John or Romans are like the Himalayas, then Colossians is sort of like the Alps or the Andes. And I'd love nothing more than to take you along each uh, vista and each peak of this mountain range of Colossians, but that would take months to do. So this morning what I'd like to do is just give you sort of a wide-angle lens of the whole Colossian range. Because in these verses, in our passage today, we come to the very heart of the letter. At the heart of uh, the letter to the Colossians, we are confronted with two stark alternatives. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that there are really only two ways to live. One way to live uh, was being promoted by some false teachers in Colossae. So Paul writes to the Colossian church, warning them not to take the bait. And instead, he tells them of a better way to live. It is these two alternatives, these two ways of living that I want to explore with you this morning. First, I want us to look at what Paul warns against and why he does that. And then second, I want us to see what he urges for and then discuss practically what that looks like for us today. So first, what is Paul uh, warning against? What is the first way uh, that one can live? Well, look with me at verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now the word philosophy in Paul's day was much broader than it is today. Paul's not taking issue with philosophy as a discipline, but rather he's rejecting a specific kind of philosophy. He's rejecting the system of thought that was being promoted by these false teachers in Colossae. These false teachers had come, actually, from within the church. They believed in Jesus, and they were claiming to be Christians themselves, but they believed uh, that, as, that basically they believed in Jesus, but only as far as he would go. In order to come to a real fullness, they said, what, what was needed was Jesus plus something else. And for Paul, this is subtraction by addition. By adding to the Christian faith, they were actually distorting it. In the Bible, whenever there is a combination of distorted beliefs about God or how we are to worship Him, it's called idolatry. 
And often we think of idolatry as this really primitive picture of ancient people bowing down to statues like the the golden calf in Exodus. And while that certainly is a form of idolatry, idolatry encompasses far more than just that. In its most basic sense, idolatry is putting anyone or anything in the place of God. It's to ascribe ultimate value, ultimate worth to something else. Idolatry, it fails to worship the one true God by making other things, other people, into so-called gods. If this language of idolatry sounds perhaps primitive to you, you need to recognize that worship is not something primarily that we just do here on Sundays when we gather. Every human being, in fact, is constantly worshiping, often without realizing it. It's just part of our DNA. In fact, at no point can you stop worshiping. James K.A. Smith puts it like this. He says, the question is not whether you long for some version of the good life, but which version you long for. This is true for any human being. It's a structural feature of human creatureliness. You can't not love. We are lovers first and foremost. Smith says that worship is what we love above all else. And notice that this understanding of worship is indiscriminate of whether you consider yourself religious or not. When people say that they're not religious, usually what they mean is that they don't attend religious services or they don't believe in God. But if worship is really just ascribing ultimate value to something, then it doesn't matter how religious you consider yourself. The question is not whether you worship, it's what is the object of your worship. So exactly what were these idolatrous Colossian teachers trying to get people to worship? Well, Paul gives us two phrases in verse 8 that tell us about the nature of their teaching. There were at least two components to their idolatry. The first one, we are told, was human tradition. Human tradition here is likely a reference to Jewish ritualism in Colossians. Uh, It's pharisaical legalism. And these teachers They actually had a favorable attitude towards Jesus, as I said, but they believed that the best, the most sublime worship that is out there uh, that, that brought about real fullness involved these old Jewish rituals and traditions. A a second component to their idolatry was uh, that it involved the elemental spirits of the world. Now, that's a greatly debated phrase, uh, but it likely refers to Greek pagan religion. Once more, these teachers thought Jesus was just fine, but in order to achieve real fullness, they needed pagan uh, mystical experiences. And if you are sitting there thinking, wow, this all sounds so very foreign to our day and age, I want to suggest to you that these same forms of idolatry are prevalent today. Let's take the the idol of pagan spirituality, for instance, first. Uh, In a recent poll by Pew Research, the number of adults in the United States who identified as spiritual but not religious went up from 19% in 2012 to 27% in 2017. That's over one in four who identify as spiritual but not religious. And what's really impressive is that number increased at the same time that the number of people who identified as religious and spiritual dropped from 59% to 48. And religious institutions have been sounding the alarm bells for a while, but studies across the board are showing that younger generations are not losing their hunger for spirituality. 
Another study was conducted just last year on Generation Z, and it sounds like it could have been taken 2,000 years ago in the city of Colossae instead of right here in the U.S. today. This study found that 51% of those between the ages of 13 and 25 engage in divination practices such as crystals, tarot cards, fortune-telling, and horoscopes. 51%. But what's most shocking is hearing why they answered the way they did. Here are some of their responses. Blake, a 21-year-old who identified as spiritual but not religious, said, For me, I'm a very spiritual person, but I go based off my daily horoscope. I'm a Leo, so I look at my horoscope to see, and is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? And I live by that religiously. Or Matthew, a 22-year-old who is also spiritual but not religious, said, I think crystals are like saints for young people. Sometimes you just need something or someone that is rooted in courage. Abby, a 20, an 18-year-old uh, non-denominational Christian, said that sometimes I feel silly for engaging with crystals, but nevertheless, here they are on my nightstand. And Jesse, a 22-year-old Roman Catholic, wrote, there is such little ownership over a religious belief system that you're just told all the right answers to. These other spiritual ways have a more personal connection to them, those personal aha moments. Now, this is sobering to hear, and it's certainly a warning to the church. When we seek to pass on the faith to the next generation, we must not neglect to attune to the personal curiosity of each child as they explore the faith for themselves. And yet, this desire for finding a more personal connection in the spirit realm outside of Jesus is exactly what Paul is warning the Colossians not to do. Looking to pagan spirituality in order to find a spiritual fullness is indeed a perennial issue. And the second idol promoted by the false teachers in Colossae was religious legalism. And I would submit to you that that's just as much prevalent today as it was then. Churches are indeed filled with people who love tradition, are they not? And I'm not just talking about old uh, traditional churches. No, new contemporary churches love their traditions too. If a church has been around for longer than a couple weeks, I guarantee you that there are already patterns and traditions that are established. And you know the three most terrifying words that you could ever utter in a church is change is coming. And we're an Anglican church. We, we put a lot of stock in tradition. And I would suggest that's a, a good thing. We don't believe that we are the first or the smartest Christians who've ever lived, and so we look to other Christians who've gone before for guidance. Sometimes they can help us make decisions when it comes to matters of secondary importance. Uh, questions like, what should we wear in leading worship services? Or should we baptize babies of uh, believers or not? Or how should we govern ourselves as a church? These are all questions that aren't really answered in Scripture clearly, so we look to Christian tradition. But sometimes religious tradition can be idolized. Whenever the phrase, but that's how it's always been done, is shouted with a justifying rage instead of a humble sorrow, you can be sure that religious idolatry is happening. And there are many ways religion can be an idol. When Paul tells the Colossian church that they were circumcised with a circumcision that was made without hands, this is undoubtedly a rebuke of those false teachers 
who were looking to ceremonies and regulations like circumcision for their religious justification. Circumcision for the old covenant people of God and, and baptism for the new covenant people of God are both the rites of initiation into the community of faith. They're both wonderful signs of God's gracious promises to us. But both have become idols in the history of God's people. Paul is clear here in verse 12 that these religious ceremonies of baptism and circumcision, they have no power in and of themselves. They guarantee nothing apart from faith in Christ. It can be so easy for us to look to the fact that we've been baptized or that we uh, look to our church attendance or maybe we look to our annual church giving statement as items on our religious resume and we can cling to this resume in order to gain a sense of superiority and security over others and over even God Himself. So we shouldn't think that the Colossians are all that different from we are today. We do need to be on guard, as Paul says, against these idols of religious legalism and pagan mysticism. But there are far more than just these two idols that we need to be watching out for. It was John Calvin who said that our hearts are like idol factories. We are prone to take any number of good things and to make them ultimate things. Our spouse, our children, our relationships, or our desire for such relationships, they can become our functional God. Or we can look to our own physical health as the most important thing in our lives. Or if we dive down deep into our own hearts, we can find that we can make idols out of things like approval or control or comfort. My question to you this morning is, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title over your heart? To who or what do you look for for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? Anyone or anything else besides Jesus Christ cannot live under such existential weight. I love the quote from Jim Carrey, the actor at at his height of fame and fortune, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. My friends, idols always break down. And that's why Paul in verse 8 exposes them for what they really are. Empty deceit. Well, if idolatry and empty deceit of the Colossian false teachers is this first way of living, then what's the other way to live. Let's look secondly at how Paul urges the Colossians to live. Paul says in verse 6, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. To walk in something is a Hebrew idiom. It meant to have your whole life centered upon that thing. And other translations make this clear when they translate this verse, continue to live your lives in Him. Paul says the better way to live is to have everything you do center upon this person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave an agricultural metaphor to illustrate this. He said, when you receive him by faith, you become connected to him like a branch to a vine. You become rooted in him like a tree's roots in fertile soil. Paul's charge is not to be swayed by other teaching, no matter how persuasive or lofty it may sound. Instead, if you want to grow, he says, don't move on from Jesus. Don't go anywhere else. Put your anchor down on Jesus Christ and let your roots grow deep 
in him. As I said earlier, Paul makes some astounding statements about who Jesus is and what he has done in this letter to the Colossians. He says in chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He says in chapter 2 in verse 10 that Jesus, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Just wrap your mind around some of these statements. Here is God in the flesh. The the fullness that the Colossians were tempted to go off and find in, in pagan mysticism and ritual legalism, it's all right here in the person of Jesus. There is no more deity outside of Him. There's no more personal connection to be had that's uh, outside of Him. There's no greater spiritual encounter than an encounter with Jesus. And unlike all of our idols, which only condemn us when we fail them, Jesus Christ runs with a relentless love after those who fail Him. He pursues His people to rescue them, and He ends up sacrificing Himself for His beloved something that idols will never do. At the very place where He sacrificed Himself at the cross, He took your debt of sin and He nailed it there and set it aside once and for all. And having died to forgive you, He also rose to new life, to give you eternal life. And it's at His resurrection that He triumphed over all His enemies, making a public display of all these spiritual forces of wickedness, and he he put all of the idols to shame. All his power, all his victory, all his fullness can be yours if you are in him by faith. Can you imagine the Colossians' response when they received this letter? Paul has just demonstrated how much better Jesus is above everything else that they were tempted to go after, and I can imagine that they probably responded a lot like The Apostle Peter did after the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus asked him if he too was about to turn away and go elsewhere. And Peter said, Lord, where would we go? Who could possibly measure up to you? Friends, Jesus is not meant to be your co-pilot. He is the center of all things and your and my life is meant to revolve around Him. So what does it mean practically to walk in Him? What does it look like to have your life revolve around Him? Well, I would say that it means to do all things in such a way to show that your ultimate treasure is not in those things. To eat or to drink, to work and to rest in such a way that it is clear that these are not your ultimate hopes. But Jesus is your ultimate hope. Our hearts are fickle, are they not? You see, in the Christian life, uh, it's, it's, the Christian life is a lot like when Israel had been freed from slavery in Egypt and they were on the way to the promised land. Uh, they were forgiven and freed, and yet along the way, they began to grumble and long for life back in Egypt. Even though they were set free, they wanted to submit again to slavery. And Paul says that living our lives in Christ must mean that we are on guard against the idols in our lives because our hearts are prone to return to their old bondage. Our idols are fickle because our hearts are fickle. And one of the things that is an essential part of our lives in Christ is to understand how exactly our hearts work. 
throughout the summer, my wife and I took our kids to the beach. They really got into boogie boarding this summer, which was a delight to see their joy. But um, as they were out there, one of the things that they are learning is that it takes about one minute to end up about 100 yards down the beach if they're not constantly keeping their eyes fixed on us on the shore and fighting against this strong tide. And our hearts operate a whole lot like children on the beach. They can easily be swept away without realizing it. And one of the sobering realities of the Christian life is that often what we think we love is not actually what we love. It was Archbishop William Temple who said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. So what is it that you daydream about? What do you habitually think about to get comfort and joy in the privacy of your own heart? If we are to live our lives in Christ, we must come face to face with our daily habits. Our habits not only reveal what we love, they actually reinforce those very loves. And Justin Whitmill Early has written a book about spiritual uh, habits, and in this book, or The Spiritual Power of Habits, the, the book's called The Common Rule, and he notes that it's not enough to merely recognize how habits work, how they shape our lives, nor is it simply enough to tell ourselves over and over and over and over again what we ought to love. In reality, if we're going to love that which we want to love, then we must reform our habits and by reforming our very practices. The, the truth is that the only way out of false worship is to practice true worship. He says in his book, The Habits of the Household, you can't think yourself out of a pattern that you didn't think yourself into. If our unconscious habits were what led us astray to loving idols, then we are going to have to reckon with these habits if we want to live our lives centered on Christ. This is where the church in her wisdom has given us some practices called spiritual disciplines. The praying, fasting, scripture reading, uh, solitude and silence, these are all some of those. Uh, they, they are the gymnasium where our hearts go to, to work out. The spiritual disciplines are where we go in order to reform our loves so that we can love Jesus and others as we ought to do. Well, let me, let me end with this. If we are going to utilize this gymnasium of the spiritual disciplines in order to reform our loves and our habits, then I must say a word about how we approach the spiritual disciplines. The film Saving Private Ryan is about a young man in World War II who lost all of his brothers in combat, and so the U.S. government uh, decides to find this Private Ryan, and, and he's the sole surviving brother, and they're going to bring him home. And it turns out to be a thrilling and yet a deadly mission, one in which uh, the captain of the mission, Captain Miller, will ultimately give up his life. As he's dying, Captain Miller grabs Private Ryan and brings him close, and, and he lets out these final words, earn it, earn this. And the movie ends with Private Ryan, near the end of his life, returning to the grave of, of Captain Miller. He bends down, and with a tone of desperation and exhaustion, he says, I didn't know how I would feel coming back here. I have thought every day about what you said on the bridge. Earn this. And I've, I've tried to live my life as best as I could. 
I hope it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what you have done for me. I know the, the writer and the director of the film meant for these words to be moving, but I'm, I'm not so sure they are moving in the way that they wanted them to be. These are tragic words, are they not? These are spoken by a man who has spent his whole life in despair and uncertainty trying to pay back a debt that he in no way could repay. And my fear is that perhaps you are seeking to walk in Christ to live the Christian life in much the same way. Maybe you're thinking that you begin by grace when you trust in Jesus, but really it's up to you to live the rest of your life not to let Him down. Or maybe you know in your head that you don't earn God's love, but when you actually begin to put one foot in front of the other in the Christian life, in your heart of hearts you revert back to thinking that you hope that God hasn't wasted His love on you. That His costly death will be worth it if you can just get your act together. My friends, look at verse 6. It says, it doesn't say if you walk in Christ, then you have received Him. It says, no, if you've received Christ, now walk in Him. The order is important. Walking in Christ is not a way to repay God for what He did for us at the cross. It's not a a gift that comes with the condition that we have to make it worthwhile for Him. If you see the gospel in this way, you will not only be exhausted from the despair and the uncertainty in your life, not only will you never know uh, what if you're doing is enough, not only will you tend to view God and others contractually, but the worst thing about viewing the Christian life and the gospel this way is that you'll actually miss out on the real power that comes with the true gospel message. Only when you see the radical nature of God's love, that it's not based on anything that you do before or after you come to faith, only then will you come to know the incredible security that enables you to walk in Christ with freedom and confidence. My friends, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Amen.